Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, and welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, The History of Egypt, Episode 65, Hatshepsut of Millions of Years, in which we celebrate with the Queen King as her reign reaches its culmination. Monuments are going up, festivals are being planned, and officials are busy manoeuvring, seeking favour and the opportunity for advancement. This episode is brought to you by Donald Collins, Valentin Parks, and Sandra Lynn, who have kindly donated to the show. Thank you folks from the bottom of my heart. Enjoy an extra special episode. I also want to give a shout out to our listener George, who at the age of 67 has just completed his BA in Egyptology. Join me in giving a warm hand to George and wish him the best of luck in future research. If we're lucky, I'll be able to convince him to guest spot for me one day when we reach the era of his specialization. Now then, on with the show. I have conceived these deeds for my successors. It was a creation of my heart, my success from knowledge. It wasn't given to me as an instruction by any elder. The architect Enneni from his tomb at Thebes in the reign of Hatshepsut. It is now 1485 BCE, give or take. We have reached regnal year 10 of the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, daughter of Amun, Ma'at Kare Hatshepsut. Times are interesting for the Queen-King. Her rule is secure, her power is unchallenged, and her authority extends beyond the Nile Valley into Punt and the Near East. She's riding high, and over the next few years she will reach her peak in splendour and fame. The theme of this episode really can be summed up as celebration. Every aspect, it seems, of Hatshepsut's second decade on the throne was, in one way or another, a celebration of her accomplishments so far, and a celebration of what she had brought to Egypt, what she could offer, and what she gave, both to gods and to the people. But it's not as if this is some kind of undeserved grandiosity. In fact, I honestly think that Hatshepsut had every right to be proud of her accomplishments. Looking back on her first ten years of rule, Hatshepsut had achieved a great deal. She had launched expeditions, commissioned magnificent monuments, and put a unique spin on the idea of the Egyptian kingship, referring to herself both figuratively and literally as the daughter of the creator god Amun-Ra. It would have been perfectly justifiable to sit back on her laurels and let that be her legacy. But in many ways, her contributions to Egypt were only just beginning. It was time to move forward, to start putting her power to work up and down the country, and to make sure that her legacy was as strong in architecture as it was in propaganda. Although, they're kind of the same thing in Egypt, right? 
Anyway, as part of her agenda post-year 9, the Queen began to commission and plan new monuments. The word went out, Hatshepsut wanted new projects, and the country's workforce mobilised to make it happen. Up and down the Nile Valley, workers began to dedicate their waking hours to stone quarrying, labouring, and building work. Their work was hard, but really, what did Hatshepsut care about that? She wasn't exactly an egalitarian reformer. She had her agenda, and the people of Egypt were there to serve it. No matter the cost, no matter how many monuments, they would see her projects done. Ironically, most of these monuments are now long gone. Only fragments remain. But it would be a shame to ignore them. So strap in while we do a quick flyby of what survives. It's a whirlwind tour from Sinai to Karnak, here on Hatshepsut Tour Lines. First up, Sinai Peninsula. Hatshepsut sent an expedition into the Sinai Peninsula in year 10. This was just after her Punt expedition had returned home, and a few years after work began at Jesser Jesseru. So it was prime time for mining expeditions. The Queen needed valuables to decorate her monuments. For such items, Sinai was the place to go. The Sinai Peninsula was destination number one for luxury goods like copper and turquoise. The Egyptians had been harvesting these ever since the first dynasty, and the area had grown a lot. There were shrines, temples, and even small settlements near the mining regions. And when Egypt was strong, the kings counted Sinai as one of their dominions. By Hatshepsut's day, Sinai was a major destination for the Egyptian royal economy. It produced metal for weapons and general objects, and the turquoise was a valuable commodity for temples and for jewellery. So the area was an economic powerhouse. Hatshepsut did not ignore it. Her expedition came to Sinai in year 11, led by a royal official. Not by Hatshepsut, of course. She didn't seem particularly interested in leaving the Nile Valley, and Sinai was not exactly a destination worthy of her attention. She sent an envoy, a representative whom she could trust to arrange matters to her benefit. As you might already have guessed, this was none other than our dear uncle, our beloved Senenmut. Senenmut, right-hand man and loyal servant of the Queen King, came to the Sinai to inspect the mines, and to see that the most important temple in the area, the temple to Hathor, was properly maintained. He probably came with a set of specific instructions, because by the time he left, the temple had been decorated with a bunch of new images. There's not much to say about these images in general, except that, interestingly, one of them shows Hatshepsut as a woman, but gives her the titles of a king. This is strange, because when Hatshepsut became king, she essentially put aside her female guise, and tried to present herself as a male as often as possible. So why the sudden break with the habit? It might have something to do with the location. Nobody was really going to check Sinai, were they? Or it might be that this was an offering to Hathor. Hathor, the mistress of women, was surely not going to mind if Hatshepsut represented herself with her true biological sex. Still, 
It's an odd blip in Hatshepsut's artistic record. She has all the titles of a king, but she's depicted as a woman. Did Senenmut realize what he was doing? Probably, but he gives us no comment on it. So that was random, but hey, it's Senenmut we're talking about. He does what he wants. But I digress. Back to the monuments. Senenmut did not stay in the Sinai for very long. He showed up, inspected the temple and the mines, and then left, bringing back copper and turquoise for his queen. Behind him, he left a small monument to commemorate his visit. A small stela, not a particularly impressive one, but one that historians have found particularly fascinating. Why? Well, because of whom it chooses to depict. Normally, an Egyptian stela, especially one for a royal event, would depict A, the person who made it, and B, either the ruling king or a deity, or both. Simple, right? You'd expect the stela to show Senenmut, and either Hatshepsut or a deity, or both. And it almost does that, but it makes one small change that has had historians arguing and debating for nearly 50 years. So what did Senenmut do? Senenmut omitted Hatshepsut from his stela. The image on top shows himself, the goddess Hathor, who ruled Sinai, and someone else. Someone who wasn't Hatshepsut. Someone named Neferura, the princess, Hatshepsut's daughter. The one that was a thousand miles away in Karnak, and had absolutely nothing to do with Sinai, and no reason to be interested. What was she doing on this monument, and why did Senenmut talk about her? Historians don't quite know what to make of this piece, and eventually the theories started to get a little extreme. The common thinking, or at least among some historians back in the day, was that maybe, just maybe, Hatshepsut put Neferura on this stela in place of herself in order to start planting an idea. An idea that would be utterly revolutionary, totally unorthodox, and completely baffling. What's the idea? Well, some historians wondered if Senenmut and Neferura appear on this stela in the Sinai because Hatshepsut had started to think about the possibility of making Neferura her heir. Seriously? Hey, it's possible. The idea goes that perhaps when Hatshepsut died, she could pass her authority onwards, not to Tutmose III, who was now about 12 years old, but to her own daughter. In effect, a new female line might be established. This is a fascinating idea, but today it does not carry much weight. Not because it's beyond the realm of possibility, Hatshepsut was obviously more than capable of considering the idea, but because it's improbable. It's just hard to believe that Hatshepsut would ever seriously think her rule would end with anybody but Tutmos, who was technically the foremost king, taking up the mantle of power. Although Hatshepsut might have thought about putting her daughter forward, we can't seriously believe she considered it as anything more than a rainy day idea. Not that Egypt has rainy days, but you get what I mean. Still, Senenmut caused a bit of a fuss when he set that stela up, at least in the 20th century. It's one of the big problems with historiography about Hatshepsut. She's so unique in the annals of the New Kingdom, an era already filled with big personalities, that writers sometimes get overexcited and make mountains out of molehills. Frankly, if Hatshepsut was even aware of the stela's existence, I would be a bit surprised. She had bigger concerns than what Senenmut did out in the Sinai. 
If he came back saying that everything was fine, and nothing happened to contradict that, then who cared who was on what stealer? Even if Hatshepsut did care about it, she probably didn't do anything more than give Sen and Moot a slap on the wrist. Still, it makes Sinai an interesting example of what Sen and Moot was about, and how much influence he peddled out in the provinces, away from prying eyes. Now, let's leave the Sinai and get back to the Nile Valley. Next stop, Memphis. We'll have to skip past the Delta, not because there's nothing there, but because the one place worth talking about is interesting only when we get to chatting about the Third. It's a place called Peru Nefer, and I'll talk about it in the next episode. For now, sorry Delta, we're going to the capital. We now arrive at Men Nefer, Memphis, the capital city of Egypt. But was it really the capital? In some ways, no, but in others, yes. It was still the most important administrative centre, because government over the Delta region was centralised in this town. In other words, all the produce and agricultural products of the Delta region came through Memphis on their way to Thebes. This made Memphis the main focal point of the northern economy. Secondly, it was still the most important religious centre of the country. Even though Karnak had become very important, and Hatshepsut was building it up quite nicely, Memphis was still home to two of the four main temples in Egypt. The Temple of Ta, or Petech, the craftsman, and the solar temples of Ra at Heliopolis were both centred on Memphis. So the religious life of the Nile Valley was basically concentrated in this part of the country. Hatshepsut could not, and did not, ignore that, even if her personal beliefs favoured Amun. To honour and embellish the old capital city, Hatshepsut commissioned restoration work at the ancient temple of Tar. This was more than worthwhile, and I wish, oh I wish, that the temple of Tar survived properly today. Sadly, it is mostly just foundations, not even that really, and the best we can see is small fragments here and there. One piece that does survive from Hatshepsut is beautiful. It's a sphinx. Made of alabaster and bearing the smiling face of the queen, it reclined along with a twin next to a processional roadway that approached the temple's entrance. Hatshepsut was rather fond of sphinxes, and she seems to have used them a lot in her additions to temples. Of those that survive, this one is truly beautiful. It was later usurped by Ramesses II, that old rascal, but its features are undeniably those of our dearly beloved. As usual, see it on our Facebook page and websites. Leaving Memphis again, we head further south, skipping a couple of places in Middle Egypt that I'll talk about later. We fly past Abydos, past Asyut and El Kab, those important centres of the rural temples and provincial nobility. We fly past the Wadi Hammamat and Koptos, where Hatshepsut had sent her army out towards the Red Sea for their expedition to Punt. Finally, we arrive at the town of Eunu Montu, or Armant. Armant was the town most famous for being Senenmut's probable birthplace. It was a small, out-of-the-way community south of Thebes that was dominated by the cult of the war god, Montu. Hatshepsut dedicated monuments to Montu, and so Armant benefited from some royal contributions. Unfortunately, the monument that Hatshepsut commissioned is now gone, but another one from her reign survives, a donation from Senenmut. Senenmut gave to the Temple of Montu three stone statues. 
they show the official kneeling and holding different items. In one, he holds a large sistrum, a kind of musical instrument, a bit like a rattle. And in another two, he holds a Uraeus servant, crowned with a sun disc. Upon these statues, he says things like, Senenmut lifts the goddess Renenutet on behalf of the life, prosperity, and health of Ma'at Kare Hatshepsut, who lives forever. He also says things like, Senenmut lives Renenutet, the splendid one of Armant, that she might give an offering to the overseer of the estate of Amun, Senenmut. You know, the usual stuff. Here's a gift, O oh God. Now, gimme, gimme, gimme. Good old Senenmut, what would we do without you? Let's leave Armant and head onward again. We now arrive at a place called Kenny. Kenny is not a town so much as it is a giant, giant quarry, as in a stone mining quarry. At Kenny, generations of stonecutters were labouring in service of the 18th dynasty rulers. They dug up huge blocks of sandstone to use in the royal monuments. One of the big hallmarks of the early 18th dynasty, and particularly Hatshepsut's reign, is a shift in architectural practices. Not so much in building style, but in the use of construction materials. You see, sandstone was becoming very fashionable at this time. Back in the olden days, Egyptians had built most of their largest monuments in limestone, a white stone that shines very nicely when polished. They used limestone for most of the largest projects like the pyramids, or even the walls of the old capital, Memphis. That was fairly logical in the days when kings ruled up in the north. Those towns sat near to huge limestone deposits. All the government had to do was arrange the labour, and transport was pretty straightforward. Limestone was tried and true, and a respectable building material. But now, limestone was running out. After 1500 years of monumental quarrying projects, limestone supplies were starting to run a bit thin. Quarries were depleting, and the architects of Hatshepsut's kingdom had to look for new sources of stone. If they wanted to keep up with their queen's ambitions, which were, as we'll see, truly immense, something had to be done. Fortunately, there was an even better building material to use. The Egyptians had now discovered the eminent qualities of sandstone, and from the 18th dynasty onwards, they started to use it for almost every monument around. Why? The answer is pretty simple, really. Sandstone, when properly formed, is incredibly strong, much stronger than limestone. This meant that the Egyptians could quarry out bigger pieces than ever before without worrying about it breaking. Bigger pieces meant bigger blocks. Bigger blocks meant stronger masonry. Add that all together, and you get one very good building material. So once the Egyptians switched over to using sandstone as much as possible, they could start to make their monuments larger. For Hatshepsut, this was an absolute godsend. She could order bigger obelisks, bigger columns, bigger courtyards with wider and longer roofs. Everything could be bigger. This is one of the main reasons why, starting in Dynasty 18, temples like Karnak became so enormous and elaborate compared to what they'd been before. It wasn't that the Egyptians were more religious during the New Kingdom, it was that they had the materials to make bigger temples. The structural integrity of pyramids, for instance, was probably a lot less complicated than the structural integrity of a vast hall with roofs and columns. This isn't to say pyramids were easier to build, 
just that there were more considerations dealing with open spaces than with enclosed tombs. Thank heavens for sandstone, eh? Hatshepsut certainly thought so. Almost all of her main contributions to Karnak, and up and down the Nile Valley, used sandstone in large quantities. She was lucky in this respect, because sandstone is incredibly abundant in Upper Egypt. Considering that Hatshepsut spent most of her days living in Thebes, this made it a very good building material. She didn't have to worry too much about the distance or the effort going into it. She could simply set up her teams and send them southward to the large quarries at locations like Kenny. Kenny is a grand area. In some places, the rocky cliff faces are more than 40 metres high. That's 131 feet for the Americans. It was also incredibly productive. Over the years, the Egyptians may have quarried as much as 7 million tonnes of sandstone from this area. Impressive, no? The site was used for more than 3,000 years on and off. The earliest rock scribblings date from the pre-dynastic period. But scattered records persist all the way from this era to the reign of the Roman Emperor Claudius. That's in the 1st century AD. If you ask me, that is some damn fine quarrying. Damn fine. For Hatshepsut's artisans, Kenny Sandstone was perfect. They set up shop in the Quarry Valley, got to work, and began to hew and carve the stone needed by their queen, and by their gods. Ancient Egyptian quarries were not safe places to work. The general lack of good health and safety policy meant that most people worked on rickety scaffolds with copper chisels and only the basics of on-site medical care. We can guarantee that many people broke limbs or even died. Fortunately, the locals didn't have to go far for this privilege. Before too long, Kenny had developed its own cemetery for burials, so it became a little self-contained community, supplying the needs of the great and powerful, and very much leaving its mark on the great buildings of the period. We can attribute this especially to Hatshepsut, because Kenyan sandstone is found in abundance in her royal monuments. Her first wave of projects used things like limestone, but when it came time for her to really go big, she started to use good Kenyan sandstone, and the results were apparently lovely. One of the major sandstone monuments built for the Queen is called the Eighth Pylon of Karnak. A pylon is a monumental gateway, and this was a lovely piece of work. When it was complete, it measured 21 metres high. Not the tallest ever built, but still pretty good. Monuments like the Eighth Pylon were going up all over Thebes, and we'll talk about them later on in this episode. The Queen was embellishing Karnak and the Temple of Luxor, both of which would play a big role in one of her main festivals. More on that later. All of this was happening with the aid of those labourers and builders scurrying about the sandstone quarries. From Kenny to Thebes, these tough-as-nails Egyptians were working hard on behalf of their queen. Ironically, Hatshepsut's fondness for sandstone probably contributed a great deal to her monuments disappearing. Why? Well, the problem with sandstone is that it's very durable and hard to cut. So, it is a great building material, but it's also very expensive. After the temples of Hatshepsut fell down, decades or even centuries later, they started to get robbed of their stone. You see, local Egyptians have been quarrying the ancient buildings themselves for thousands of years. When temples became neglected and collapsed, or the cults themselves died out, 
people would remove the fallen blocks and use them for new projects like housing. Why let it go to waste, right? In poorer days, it was far easier to obtain sandstone this way than from the quarries themselves. Of course, archaeologists resent this and the loss of those monuments, but it's a fact of life. If you can reuse an old piece of stone, most people will do so. Why go to the trouble and cost of cutting a new one? Personally, I don't judge them too harshly. They were just trying to get by. Still, we can say that Hatshepsut's fondness for sandstone was the ironic cause of many monuments disappearing. If she had known that, do you think she still would have used it? It's hard to tell, but it makes you wonder. With Kenny and the sandstone quarries, we end our semi-whirlwind tour of Hatshepsut's monuments outside of Thebes. Now, we're going to skip ahead a few years, to the 16th year of Hatshepsut's reign. Well, we say 16th because that was how long Tutmos III had been ruling for, but Hatshepsut did something in year 16 that has historians wondering how, exactly, she dated her reign. Did she see it as year 16? Or did she see it as something more like year 30? In regnal year 16 of Thutmose III Hatshepsut, approximately 1479 BCE, Hatshepsut threw a party. Probably the biggest party Egypt had seen for, well, decades at least. It was a celebration, a celebration of everything that Hatshepsut had done yet, and everything that she would do in future. Not to mention, a celebration of her general awesomeness. This was a sweet 16. A sweet 16 like any other today. There was a monumental celebration, the birthday girl was praised and celebrated for her splendour, and everyone went away feeling that life was just so much better having this person around. I've never been to a sweet 16 party, but I imagine that's what they're like. Anyway, the party that Hatshepsut was planning, the one that made year 16 so grand, was an important occasion. You see, Hatshepsut had decided to throw a said festival, and it was going to be the best party ever. The said festival, to refresh your memory, was a royal jubilee. It occurred when a king had sat on the throne for 30 years, and it was meant to both celebrate his rule and renew his power on earth. There were all kinds of rituals and religious aspects to it, which we'll get into, but it was also a party, and it seems to have culminated in an event where everyone got totally absolutely wrecked. Like, colossally drunk. If you're the sort of person who likes to have a drink while you unwind, please, go grab one. This would be a very good time. I'll wait. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ready? Great, let's get into it. Hatshepsut chose to have her Jubilee Festival in regnal year 16, instead of the traditional year 30. There are two possible reasons for this. On the one hand, 
she might have been celebrating the 30th year since her father, Tutmos I, came to the throne. This would make some sense according to Hatshepsut's version of events. According to her, Tutmos I had, long before he died, named his daughter, not his son, as his heir to the throne. In this version of history, Hatshepsut had started ruling Egypt as soon as her father died, or even before as a co-regent, and so the said festival was totally appropriate in year 16. If I had to put words in her mouth, she might have said something like, look, I've been in charge a lot longer than all of you realise. You guys just haven't known that I've been in charge. I totally have. Now, let's party. Okay, probably not that, but you get my point. Hatshepsut said that she'd been in power before her dad even died. So maybe, in her version of the story, Regnal Year 16 of Tutmos III was also Regnal Year 30 of Hatshepsut. It's weak, but it worked. Alternatively, and I think this is also a good scenario, it's possible that Hatshepsut chose Year 16 to celebrate a different kind of milestone. Instead of celebrating 30 years on the throne, it's possible that she was celebrating the day of physical maturity when her co-ruler came of age. You know, the Third. Oh yeah, remember him? He's around, and by now he's approximately 17 to 19 years old. He's maturing, coming into his own, and that means it's about time he started to participate publicly in the government of the kingdom. Well, the said festival may have been the occasion at which Hatshepsut formally did that, when she finally started to let him have a say in the governance of the kingdom. Not too much say, of course, and we'll get into that next episode, but an appropriate level of input for one who was young, but still a king of Egypt. So either the said festival was occurring in some kind of weird twilight zone year 30, or it was a celebration of Tutmos III's physical maturity. Those are the two main explanations that historians have come up with, and to my mind, they're both pretty solid. Realistically, they're not mutually exclusive, so I'm not going to choose between the two. At the end of the day, Hatshepsut's plans for a jubilee were accepted, and the festival got underway in year 16. The said festival was a huge event. It took more than one day to complete. It might have even taken weeks. There were many rituals to go through, involving all kinds of religious, military, and physical demonstrations. There were long, solemn parades through the streets of Thebes and other cities, and temples played hosts to the statues, banners, and standards of all the gods and goddesses. North to south, every region of the country had its divine patron, and these marched in a procession, representing the total unity of the country's gods and their support of Hatshepsut. Then there were the offerings. First of all, Hatshepsut herself gave offerings to the gods, thanking them for their support. She prayed and sang hymns, before donating huge quantities of food, drink, copper, gold, silver, linen, and oils to the temples of the land. She thanked the deities for what they had done, and promised them even more in future, should her reign continue well. Night and day, the temples of Egypt must have been alive with music and chanting, as the king herself prayed, or let priests and priestesses do it on her behalf. Outside the temples, the said festival also featured huge celebrations of Hatshepsut's divine authority. Courtiers made public offerings to the king, of weapons, crowns, scepters, all the emblems of the monarch. 
Representatives of far-off lands came to Thebes and Memphis to give tribute to the Queen's splendour, a kind of international reception that was quickly becoming a standard perk of the burgeoning Egyptian empire. They offered goods and lavished praise, glorifying the majesty of the King of Egypt the way only a supplicant can. But before this went to her head, Hatshepsut had important tasks to complete. First, she had to complete an important physical test. She would have to run a ritual marathon, running around the courtyard at Karnak or Jesser Jesseru a number of times. She had to do this while naked, to prove her physical fitness to rule, which actually can't have been that easy for the queen. We know from her mummy that Hatshepsut was more than a little overweight, so the run must have taken a while, and by the end of it, she would have been more than a little sweaty. So next up, Hatshepsut had to purify herself. This was very important, as Egyptian priests are famous for their personal hygiene, supposedly bathing multiple times per day and shaving every hair off their body. At the very least, Hatshepsut would have had to do the same for her jubilee. There were too many religious observances for her not to be perfectly clean and sweet-smelling at all times. So after her run, it was into the pools, ritual bathing and perfuming, a good scrub, a close shave, that kind of thing. Otherwise, she risked divine pleasure. Once she was out of the pool and nice and clean, Hatshepsut now had to perform any number of laborious ceremonies. Most of these were magical in some way, renewing her authority and power to rule. They were also incredibly ancient, probably recreating events that had occurred more than 1500 years ago in the days of the first kings. The big one was a ritual of ascending to the throne, or thrones, of the two lands. This was where Hatshepsut symbolically reunified the country. This ritual is quite interesting, because it was probably performed in a way that, in some way, reenacted the legendary day when many, or Namer, unified the country so long ago. It is entirely possible, although I'm speculating, that Hatshepsut may have had to kill captive enemies as part of this ritual. Why do I think that? Well, because part of the king's role was to protect Egypt from traditional enemies, and the images of Egyptian kings are often images of them smiting captive enemies. In other words, ritual murder was a part of the Egyptian royal prerogative. Where could that be more appropriate than at a said festival? After the ascent to the thrones, there was a symbolic re-coronation. Here, a priest of Horus came to Hatshepsut and placed two crowns upon her head. First, the red crown of Lower Egypt. Second, the white crown of Upper Egypt. Finally, the two were united into the double crown, within which the two lands of the Nile Valley were unified and where the ruler's power was displayed. Through this ceremony, Hatshepsut's power to bear those crowns was renewed, and her authority was reinvigorated. When it finished, she was a new man, so to speak, vigorous, powerful, and beloved of the gods. Eat your heart out, Elizabeth. The re-coronation was done by a priest, of course. That was only appropriate. But the priest's main attendant, the one who carried the crowns, was none other than our dear uncle Senenmut. Although he was only ever an administrator, Senenmut somehow talked himself into one hell of a photo opportunity. And we can reasonably say that this, finally, was the apex of his career. Carrying the crowns for your monarch, so that she could be re-consecrated as a ruler, 
I don't even know how to describe what a big deal that must have been for him. Senenmut had reached his peak here. If he had died right then and there, he would have been a very satisfied man. We don't know everything else that went into a said festival, but there do seem to have been a lot of rituals. Hatshepsut left a few scenes behind that give us little glimpses. In one, she holds out her hand so that a cow representing Hathor can lick it. This would be a symbol of the goddess's approval and favour. Obviously, this was a bit of a gamble, and I don't think Hatshepsut was willing to put her life or power literally into the hands of a cow. We can assume that the cow was drugged, and Hatshepsut's hand was covered in honey or something similar. This would entice the cow forward and make it friendly. The use of things like honey or drugs to entice the cow is actually totally appropriate, because Hathor was known for being a drunkard. In one story, she had become so drunk on the blood of her enemies that she fell into a deep sleep, and festivals to Hathor, as we'll see later, tended to be rather bacchanalian affairs. But then on the other side of the spectrum, Hatshepsut had to compete with a male cow, a bull. In this scene, Hatshepsut runs alongside the Apis bull, a bull sacred to Osiris and Tar. In this way, she gained the support of those two other most important deities, the lords of Abydos and Memphis, respectively. Basically, you can sort of see how Hatshepsut was really doubling down on the big gods. Everybody, Tar, Osiris, Hathor, Horus, Amun-Ra, was represented at the Jubilee, and they all had their day in the sun. Basically, the said festival was one giant party for the gods, for the queen, and for the populace in general. Everything Hatshepsut did was for herself, of course, but also for the country as a whole. If her power was strong, and the main gods were happy, the people of Egypt prospered as a result. Which makes the next part of the festival that much more fun. As one of her most important celebrations of the gods, Hatshepsut had to pay homage to her father Amun, and to his divine consort, Mut. In so doing, she had to perform elaborate rituals dealing with the power of creation and the power of sexuality. As you can imagine, this next part of the said festival got a little wild. West of Thebes, across the river, Hatshepsut went to a small temple dedicated to the eight gods of the primeval creation. Amun, Amunet, Hech, Hechet, Nu, Nunet, Kuk, and Kauket, the four pairs of brother-sister deities that were the source of all creation, and from which life flowed. This was an important part of the festival, one on which all existence depended. Hatshepsut entered the Shrine of the Eight, and approached one statue in particular. This was a statue of Amun in the form known as the Ithophallic. Ithophallic just means a statue with an erect penis. So this was Amun with an erect penis, a symbol of the supreme power of creation that, according to 18th dynasty mythology, came from this god. Hatshepsut approached Ithophallic Amun and hugged him, awkwardly, from the side. She did this to avoid touching his penis, which would have been an extremely sexual act. But Amun was her father. To touch him sexually would have been inappropriate. Hatshepsut had to engage with his creative power, and she had to do it creatively. So she hugged him awkwardly from the side, looking for all the world like some kind of adorable wedding photo. Having hugged Dad, Hatshepsut then went to visit her stepmother, Moot. 
She had prepared for this by commissioning a special shrine for the goddess, called the Columned Portico of Drunkenness. As you can guess, this part of the festival was going to be fun, with a capital F-U-N. The main ritual for Moot involved a lot of beer, dyed red to represent the blood of Egypt's enemies. Hatshepsut drank it, the priests drank it, everyone drank it. The Egyptians reveled in the lifeblood of their foes, and as a bonus, became roaringly drunk. It's at this point that the party turned into something probably more like a Mardi Gras, a bacchanalian ritual of drunkenness and celebration. Was there music? Yep. Drinking? Yep. Sex? Almost certainly. After all, Moot was a mother goddess. Her name literally translates as mother. It's hard to be a mother without having sex. So the day of worshipping Moot probably ended in one hell of a party. In the morning, I'm sure there were more than a few headaches and regrets to go around. This celebration brings us to the end of what we know about the said festival of Hatshepsut. I could go into more detail, but at this point we've got the picture. It was a grand celebration, the type seen only once every few generations, and it probably resulted in a small spike in newborn babies about nine months later. Either way, it was a grand party. I expect people spoke about it for years to come. Hatshepsut and Thutmose III emerged from the said festival renewed in power and authority. We will talk about Thutmose next episode. For now, let's wrap up today's story with more of what Hatshepsut did best, celebrating herself. Specifically, we're going to talk about her most impressive monuments at Karnak, and one very important text where the Queen essentially laid out her version of Egypt's recent history. Was she rewriting the past? We'll find out. Hatshepsut celebrated her jubilee with a spate of new monuments at Karnak Temple. There was a new gateway, the 8th pylon, at the entrance, and a bunch of additions to the inner temple itself, including two new obelisks. All in all, it made for a very large contribution to Amun's holy sanctuary. Hatshepsut supposedly spent big on these monuments. The obelisks were said to be capped with electrum, an alloy of silver and gold. Pretty impressive, right? Maybe the queen had those metals in abundance, but still, that can't have been cheap. For Hatshepsut, it was all in a day's work. When you're honouring Amun and yourself, you can't shirk on the little details. The queen left short texts on these obelisks, describing herself as divine of diadems, the shining image of Amun, or Tuthej and Amun. She recalled how her father had bestowed honours on her, and that she was instructed by him to erect obelisks so that she would live forever on his favour. Fancy stuff, but we're used to it by now. The obelisks were built inside the temple itself. Outside, Hatshepsut complemented them with an immense pylon made of sandstone. Called the eighth pylon today, this monumental gateway gave Karnak a new entrance. With an avenue of sphinxes leading up to it, the eighth pylon became a magnificent beacon of the queen's devotion to her father. Anyone in Thebes could view this gateway and see her contributions, not least because the queen herself was depicted on their walls. As far as billboards go, pylons really are right up there. Inside the gateway, Hatshepsut made wonderful additions. 
she renovated a ceremonial hall of her father, Tutmose I, and she gave it a new roof, along with wooden columns covered in gold. She added statues of herself, and put those two new obelisks smack bang in the centre of the hall, so that anyone entering would see her monuments first. All in all, she turned the courtyard from a pleasant but unremarkable space into what she called a noble pillared hall. Lovely stuff. But that was just the beginning. For her pièce de résistance at Karnak, she decided to entirely renovate and replace the main central sanctuary. This was an old structure, dating back to the 12th dynasty, nearly 500 years before. Middle Kingdom rulers like Sanusaret I had made additions to it, and so had the accomplished ruler, Amunhotep I, just 30 years before. But Hatshepsut was not going to let them get in the way of her progress. She ordered that these old monuments be pulled down, moved, and set up somewhere new. In their place, she was going to build a new sanctuary, one in her honour and her splendour. This new temple inside the centre of Karnak was called the Palace of Ma'at, a proper home for Amun's statue, a place where he could reside in the splendour that Egypt was now able to provide. The new palace was built of sandstone, except for its main feature, a small shrine that Hatshepsut placed in its core to house the statue itself. This shrine survives to this day, and it is one of the most important of Hatshepsut's surviving monuments. Essentially, at the very centre of Karnak Temple, where Amun-Ra himself would dwell, Hatshepsut built a chapel to herself. Okay, not just to herself, but pretty much. The shrine that Hatshepsut put at the centre of Karnak is called the Red Chapel, and this is a real beauty. Do you remember how, back in Dynasty 12, Senusaret I built a white chapel at Karnak? A small, one-roomed monument decorated in rich reliefs and texts? Hatshepsut's was exactly like that, only red. The Red Chapel was meant to house the sacred statue of Amun-Ra on his ceremonial boat, or bark. For that reason, we call it a bark chapel. It was built of three materials, red quartzite, hence the name, black granite, and grey diorite. All good hard stones that could be polished nicely and would be durable for years to come. Expensive? Sure. Worthwhile? Absolutely. Although they took time to dig and shape, these materials paid dividends in longevity. Today, the Red Chapel has been reconstructed surprisingly well even though it got torn down about 20 years after Hatshepsut died, and partially buried. Although it was replaced and forgotten, and even partially defaced, today the Red Chapel stands loud and proud. The efforts of reconstructionists have brought the monument back to life, and you, dear listener, get to benefit from that. Hatshepsut christened her bark shrine the Set-Eb-Amun, or Seat of the Heart of Amun. It was an open-air chapel, meaning that it did not have a roof, and was open to the light of the sun. The walls sloped inward slightly, making a closed-in sense of space. Inside, the central area was ringed with a gutter, so that priests could clean and wash the statue of Amun, and that the water would just drain away. Small features like this make the monument come alive when you visit it. You can imagine the chanting priests stepping gingerly around the gutter while water and perfumes mingle and drain away. The enclosed room would be scented with their incense and myrrh, which would float up into the sky. 
the holy bark of Amun would glow in the light of the sun or of the candles. It was a holy space indeed, and we are exceptionally lucky that it survives today. The walls of this temple were, of course, decorated richly with inscriptions and with scenes of the queen. Unfortunately, many of the original blocks have been lost, thanks to that quarrying that later folk did on dilapidated monuments. What survives is only a portion of the original. What does survive tells us a few things. Different images show processions by the Nile gods. Hatshepsut makes offerings to Amun-Ra. It also shows Hatshepsut being chosen as ruler by the god, and ascending to the throne for her coronation. Finally, it shows a scene of Hatshepsut herself laying the first brick of the Red Chapel. Nice images, for all their fragmentariness, that tell us a few things about her daily life and what she did when commissioning these monuments. The texts of the chapel are less interesting, because they're basically an exact replica of the ones at Deir al-Bahari, specifically the parts which told the story of Hatshepsut's divine birth. I read that text in episode 63b, but to refresh your memory, they tell the story of how Amun-Ra came to Hatshepsut's mother in the guise of her father. Amun impregnated the queen, and then foretold how Hatshepsut would be born to rule Egypt. Tutmose I, not at all put out by the god getting involved in his marital affairs, showered praise on his newborn daughter, and decreed that she would be his heir. This was a story that Hatshepsut had been banging on about for some time, and it formed the centerpiece of her jubilee so I'm not going to labour the point here. Basically, the Red Chapel served as a second vehicle for that legend. When it was built in regnal year 17, the Red Chapel told the tale of Hatshepsut's birth in the same way that Jesser Jesseru would. It was a fallback, an extra insurance policy on making the tale as widely known as possible. And so, Hatshepsut eventually had two copies of her birthday story floating around. This was just yet one more way that the Queen cemented her authority, and guaranteed that her version of events was the official one. Speaking of official monuments, let's leave Karnak once more, and turn to our last monument for today. This is a monument in Middle Egypt, out of the way in a rural backwater, but which somehow survived to tell us a lot about Hatshepsut's political agenda, and how she presented it to the people of Egypt. Hatshepsut commissioned a monument at an out-of-the-way wadi called Istabel Antar. It was a temple dug into a cliff face, sizable for its location, which probably took a couple of years to build. Inside, it was richly decorated with the queen's image, and that of the goddess to whom the temple was dedicated. This was a lesser-known goddess named Paket. Paket is a desert goddess, an avatar of Hathor. She roamed the countryside in the guise of a lioness, and her name means she who scratches. That seems like an understatement if you ask me. Who ever heard of a lioness just scratching? Seems odd. Like her alter ego, Hathor, Paket was a protector. Images of her often show Paket killing snakes, suggesting that the Egyptians saw her as a guardian against serpents. That she lived in the desert is clear enough. One of her titles is Goddess of the Mouth of the Wadi an old name which used to be associated with Hathor. So, you can see the parallels here. Lioness aspects, a fondness for roaming deserts, well, Hathor had Sinai, but close enough, and a general sense of viciousness in the name of protection, and the latent destructive potential of feminine power. To the ancient Greeks, 
Paket was best associated with Artemis, the huntress. So when the Greek names were doled out for Egyptian regions, the temple of Paket at Istabel Antar became known as the Speos Artemidos, which is the name we know it by today. The Speos Artemidos means Cave Chapel of Artemis. Hatshepsut didn't just commission this temple, she also commissioned a complete revival or promotion of the cult of Paket itself. What did she do? Well, let me tell you. Or rather, I'll let Hatshepsut herself tell you, because she left a verbose description. So, please welcome Hatshepsut. Concerning the temples which I have restored, the temple of the mistress of Cusay, which had completely fallen into dissolution, I hallowed it, built it anew, fashioning its leading serpent of gold in order to defend its town in the processional bark. Furthermore, great goddess Paket, who roams the desert wadis, who is resident in the eastern desert, was seeking the rainstorm's paths since there was no libation service that fetched water for her. I have made her enclosure as that which this goddess intended for her ennead. The door leaves are made of acacia inlaid with bronze in order that they might be in it. Her calendar of festful offerings is in effect. The lay priests are learning of its timing. Thank you, Hatshepsut. Basically, Hatshepsut completely revived the ancient cult. She gave new offerings, set up new supplies for the temple's cult and its priests, and basically ensured that everything that was needed for the worship of this god was provided. All of this was to be housed within the beautiful temple, which we now call the Speos Artemidos. It is a beautiful monument, a rare surviving piece from a truly remarkable reign. We're fortunate to know the name of the temple's architect. It was built under the supervision of a royal official named Jehuti. Jehuti, or Thoth, was a member of the palace bureaucracy, and an important cog in the machinery of government. His job was that of Emira Perwi Hedj, or Overseer of the Two Treasuries. This was a job once held by Senenmut before he moved on to greater things, and it was a very prestigious position. For Jehuti to have attained it, he must have been of great service, value, or notoriety to the queen, and it led him to great things. The Speos Artemidos was decorated with images of the queen, but also with inscriptions. These survive pretty well, and tell us a surprising amount about the queen's public image in Middle Egypt. Oddly enough, this monument doesn't just tell us about Hatshepsut, but also about the Hyksos. Wait, the Hyksos? Those invaders from Canaan who dominated the north in the Second Intermediate Period? The ones who nearly destroyed the Theban royal household, but were finally driven out at the start of Dynasty 18? Yeah, those ones. What on earth does Hatshepsut have to do with the Hyksos? We're not entirely sure, but Hatshepsut certainly had a good idea. Quote, So listen, all you elite and you multitude of commoners. I have done this by the plan of my mind. I do not sleep forgetting, but have made form that which was ruined. I have raised up what was dismembered, beginning from the time when the Asiatics were in Avaris, with vagrants in their midst. Toppling that which had been made, they ruled without the sun, and he did not act, down to my own Uraeus incarnation. Now I am set on the sun's thrones, having been foretold as one born to take possession. I am come as Horus, the sole Uraeus, spitting fire at my enemies. 
I have banished the gods' abomination, the earth removing their footprints. Thank you, my queen. But what are you talking about? The Hyksos have been gone for 60 plus years, and I find it hard to believe that no king before you has done anything to restore the towns of northern Egypt. Well, believe it or not, that is actually not implausible at the moment. See, we have plenty of evidence for kings before Hatshepsut making contributions in Upper Egypt and Lower Nubia, but the evidence for their monuments in the north is a lot more minimal. There are some small contributions from people like the I, but these tend to be things like statues. There's no evidence yet for large-scale building projects, you know, temples or additions to cities. In other words, we're dealing with a distinct lack of evidence on the issue, so we can't exactly contradict Hatshepsut when she says that her forefathers had done nothing. Although it's hard to argue based on an absence of evidence, there is absolutely a curious gap in the record. Did it really happen that Hatshepsut, coming to power, found Egypt a country of degradation? Did she have to restore so many monuments that she basically found Egypt brick and left it in marble? As of 2016, it's still an open case. The so-called restoration of monuments that had been quote-unquote ravaged by the Hyksos is, Egyptologists think, a bit misleading. There is very little evidence, for one thing, that the Hyksos did much damage at all in Egypt, and in truth, they made plenty of contributions to the country. But Hatshepsut did not see it that way. When she found monuments degraded, probably just from lack of maintenance over decades, she knew who to blame. Maybe there's something there, from a certain point of view, but the period of the Hyksos' rule had really been one of civil war. If there was intentional damage to monuments, there was at least a 50% chance that it occurred under Egyptian hands as under Hyksos. After all, Middle Egypt, where this temple is located, had been a buffer zone between the two centres of power. In theory, it belonged to the Hyksos, but constant raiding and attacks by the Thebans made it an uncertain holding. So the temples and towns of this area had of course been neglected in that time period, and frankly, if there was any intentional damage, it's quite likely that the Thebans did it. Never mind. From Hatshepsut's point of view, the Hyksos were at fault. If they hadn't been ruling the delta illegally, there would have been stability. If there had been stability, there would have been proper maintenance and construction in the temples and towns. Ergo, Hyksos bad, Hatshepsut good, everyone satisfied. Realistically, Hatshepsut's reign is notable for its loose interpretation of historical realism, and this is probably one of her less egregious myths. Personally, I hold it against her, because I think the Hyksos get a bad rap historically. But we have to go with what she said, because it gives us a lot about her personality and the way she was presenting the information of the day. Along with her boasts about restoring the Hyksos monuments, Hatshepsut went on at length about her donations to the gods of Egypt. She talked about Packet, about the gods of Egypt, and the sad state of their temples, about how she, Hatshepsut, had restored them. Finally, she used the Speos Artemidos to proclaim herself the protector of Egypt, one whom had been foretold in the same manner that her divine birth story had suggested. Ultimately, she culminated with a grandiose proclamation of her protection of Egypt, of the gods' favour, and of what she would do to her enemies, and of how this was the way of things. Quote, 
The favourite places of all the gods have had their braziers spread and their chapels broadened. Each god is at the sanctuary which he has desired. His life force is content with his thrones, for I have stipulated the fulfilment of their enjoyment. My divine mind is looking towards posterity. The king's heart has thought of eternal continuity because of the utterance of he who parts the Ished tree, Amun, the lord of millions, and I have magnified the order he has desired. The black land and the red land under terror of me. My impressiveness making foreign lands bow down. Punt has swollen forth for me upon all its estates. Its trees are bearing fresh myrrh. The roads that were once blocked in both directions are now trodden freely. My troops, which were unequipped, have finery since my appearance as king. So listen, all you elite and the multitude of commoners. I have done this by the plan of my mind. I do not sleep forgetting, but have made form that which was ruined. Now I am set on the sun's thrones, having been foretold as one born to take possession. I am come as Horus, the sole Uraeus, spitting fire at my enemies. I have banished the gods' abomination, the earth removing their footprints. This is the system of the father of my fathers, the sun god, who now comes at his dates. Damage will not happen again, for Amun has decreed that my decree remain like the mountains. When the sun disk shines, it will spread rays over the titles of my incarnation, and my falcon will be high on the top of the Serek for the course of eternity. Utterance of the King of Upper and Lower Egypt Ma'at Kare, the son of Ray, Hatshepsut. Pretty exciting stuff, really. And for such an out-of-the-way temple, it's remarkable that the Speos Artemidos has such a lengthy and detailed historical inscription. How much of Hatshepsut says is actually true, we'll never quite be able to prove. But, as far as stories go, I think this is actually one of my favourites. The Speos Artemidos inscription is much longer than what I've given you here. And rather than give you the full piece, I've bundled it together with another in episode 65b, Two Texts of Hatshepsut. That mini-episode should be dropping onto your subscription list right about... Mm, now. So when you're done with this episode, I recommend jumping onto that for the full Hatshepsut experience. With that in mind, I think it's time we brought this long episode to its rightful end. In 1477 BCE, we have reached regnal year 17 of Hatshepsut. What a wild few years it's been. There were monuments going up all over Egypt, a nationwide building program that not only cost vast amounts of resources, but employed huge numbers of people in ways not seen for generations. Truly, the reign of Hatshepsut was, in terms of sheer construction material, a period to rival the heights of the Middle Kingdom, even, dare we say it, to rival the Pyramid Age. 1485 to 1477 BCE was a period of absolutely astounding activity and busy work in Egypt. It is no wonder that we hear nothing of wars or campaigns. With so much manpower going to important building projects, who had time for fighting? Hatshepsut was the richest monarch on earth, and she chose to spend her wealth in the glorification of gods. 
Throughout the land, the people were at work, and as the second decade of the Queen's rule passed its middle point, you would be hard-pressed, I think, to find a man or woman, rich or poor, who would seriously think to question whether Hatshepsut's unconventional rule had been a blessing or a curse. Well, maybe there was one, a young man who had been irritatingly sidelined by the Queen. Her young co-ruler, Tutmos III, what did he think of all this? That, dear listener, is our story for next episode, an episode that is both a beginning and an end. Our swan song for Hatshepsut, our debut of Tatmos, and a most awkward transition. My special thanks to my dear friend Anya Banerjee for playing Hatshepsut in this episode and in the next episode where we recount the tales of Hatshepsut. My apologies to my listeners for how long this episode took to release. As you can imagine, it was a bit of a big one, with a lot of input and working gears to get together. Finally, we did it, and I think the product speaks for itself. I hope you've enjoyed the show, and we'll see you again soon. The Egyptian History Podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, podcasters collaborating in strength. Visit agorapodcastnetwork.com to see the variety of shows on offer, and this month's featured podcaster, The Lands of Leviathan, a podcast in which, quote, two nerds analyze concepts and theories from political science and international relations using themes, trends, and trivia in popular culture. There are episodes on how international relations would be affected if the Force and the Jedi Council suddenly existed, or about how we need to separate the powers of church and state, viewed through the medium of Game of Thrones. My personal favorite? The modernization of Mordor, how Sauron might have been a great modernizer for the race of the orcs, and whether he is closer to a Nelson Mandela figure or an Adolf Hitler. It's a great little show, highly entertaining, but also informative. Check them out at soundcloud.com forward slash lands of Leviathan. 